from Los Angeles, California. This is the Writer's Strike Chronicles, and I'm Tanya Barnes. Hello, everybody. Today is Saturday, February 9th, 2008, day 97 of the Writer's Strike. Later today, the leaders of the WGA will meet with their fellow members in New York and Los Angeles to discuss the possible tentative agreement with the AMPTP. Since I am not a member of the Guild, I am unable to attend and report on these meetings, so I advise all my listeners to look to the official Guild website, WGA.org, or UnitedHollywood.com for any news and updates. In today's episode, the first of a two-part series, I have a conversation with my late father, Roy Barnes, who served in the entertainment industry for close to 30 years as a member of both the Art Directors Guild, IATSE Local 800, and the Set Designers and Model Makers Guild, IATSE Local 847. I just want to say as a side note that it seems almost too good to be true that the Writers Guild is meeting today, and I have my fingers crossed because today is my birthday. It also happens to be my dad's birthday, too. He was born on February 9, 1936. And even though there seems to be cause to be optimistic, it's important to remember that it's not over until it's over. There is a media blackout in effect, and as a new media producer and a citizen journalist, I've decided to honor the blackout rather than to bring to my listeners a bunch of unsubstantiated rumors and speculation. These series of recordings with my father were made while he was hospitalized in October 2006 at St. Joseph's Medical Center in Burbank, California. At the time, he was undergoing chemotherapy for lung cancer. It's worth noting that my dad never smoked a day in his life. Prior to his hospitalization, my father and I were estranged for many years. I'm reluctant to share this aspect of our story out of respect for his love of his surviving widow. But suffice it to say that the archetype of the evil stepmother is real, and proof of such is still living in San Gabriel, California. Because of her, our relationship deteriorated, although in the last three years of his life, attempts were made to reconnect in a meaningful way. These attempts were brought about when, on my paternal grandfather's deathbed, he asked us both separately to try to work things out. And though we tried, we just couldn't make it happen. Two weeks before my father passed, I was notified by mail from a relative that said, Call your father and don't ask questions. So I did. And when my dad picked up the phone, I knew something was terribly wrong. I could hear it in his voice. He told me he had cancer and that he asked me not to call the house because it would upset his wife. And then he said that he loved me very much. The following day, he was hospitalized, and though he asked me not to come to his home, there was nothing to stop me from coming to his bedside at the hospital. The best part of the situation, if you could call it that, is that his wife didn't drive, and therefore she never became an issue while he was in the hospital. The first day I went to see my dad was surreal. It had been many, many years. He looked so frail and weak. He wasn't expecting me, and he acted like he'd been caught or something. And then he started to cry and said he wanted to see me for so long. I was pretty upset, too, and I said that if he really wanted to see me, why didn't he do anything about it? And he said he couldn't. 
I said he wouldn't. He repeated that he couldn't, and I repeated that he wouldn't. And then he said, You're right, I wouldn't. I wouldn't do anything about it. It's true. Then I asked my dad, What do we do now? And then he looked at me and he said, We make the best with the time we have left. So for the next five days while my father was in the hospital, I came and I brought my recording equipment to capture our conversations. From the start, the rules were pretty simple. We couldn't talk about his wife. We couldn't talk about his illness. But what we could talk about and spent hours discussing were things like art, design, filmmaking, and technology. It's through these recordings that he left me a legacy of stories about his childhood growing up in a small podunk town in Pennsylvania, about his California dreams of warmth and sunshine, and how he took off at the age of 21 on Route 66 to realize these dreams, and what happened when he got to L.A., and his trials and tribulations when he was accepted to study at Art Center College of Design. It was there he met my mom, who was an art model at the time, in his life-drawing class. My dad told me many stories. He told me that he came to California for the sun and that he aspired to have a career in architectural design. And for a while, he was working hard to achieve his goals and had landed a job at Welton Beckett & Associates, the firm that designed such Hollywood landmarks as the Capitol Records Building and the Cinerama Dome. In the following recording, my dad tells the story about how, after working on a project called New Orleans Square for Disneyland, how he was looking for his next job and somehow fell down the rabbit hole and was offered a job at Universal Studios as a set designer. Now, before we begin, I want to let my listeners know that my father was receiving supplemental oxygen during these recordings, and therefore a slight hiss can be heard throughout. Also, my dad was heavily medicated on pain relievers, so there may be times when it's just impossible to comprehend what he said. Having said that, let's roll sound with Roy Barnes. Anyway, he was—he had been in charge of Disney's art department for like a long time. His first name was John. And when I called over there, his secretary answered the phone and she says, oh, okay. I, she says, let me talk to him. And she says, okay. He says, okay, he'll see you. Come on in. Was that same day? Same day, yeah. I called. So I went over there to Disney. And, and John Mansbridge, the name is Manbridge, yeah. And so I went over and showed him my portfolio, and he loved my work. And he says, you know, you really do belong in the business. You've got some really good stuff here. This is after 18 years of preparation. Not for this. I wasn't preparing for this because I had no idea that I would ever end up in the film industry. And uh, he says, but unfortunately, he says, I can't use you. I'm filled up. He says, but I know somebody who might. So he picked up the phone. He called over to Universal, Hank Meyer. They know each. They knew each other. And uh, Hank said, okay, send him over. Oh, first of all, he says, Hank, I got somebody here. I'd like you to look at his work. I, he really belongs in the business. And I could hear Hank at the other side. He had a pretty loud voice. Okay, Hank, send him over. I'll talk to him. So I went straight from Disney right over to Universal. 
and went into the parking lot, parked, walked down to the art department, which I had no idea where it was, but I, you know, found out. And uh, Hank took me in his office. He looked at my work, and uh, he said, yeah, this is nice stuff, I like it. He said, um, now, I'll tell you what's gonna happen. You're gonna have to join a union. It's gonna cost you this much. I forget what it was at that time. There's an initiation fee, then there's monthly, uh, yearly dues. And he says, and here's how much money you're gonna make. And I don't remember what it was. And I said, where do I sign? And he said, start, this was a, this was a Thursday, October 1st, I think it was. And he said, call me tomorrow to verify it. He gave me his direct line number. And I walked out of there, I was on a cloud. I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. After 18 years of preparation, not for a job in the film industry, thinking I was gonna be working in, as an illustrator, graphic designer, or architectural designer for architects or contractors or builders, I end up like it fell in my lap, like from, from God. It was like, wow. Overnight success. Well, it wasn't actually success, but it was like, <laughs> I, I had never dreamed of this. It never entered my mind. So I called him on Friday morning, about 10 o'clock. He says, come to work on Monday. I couldn't believe it. I parked my car down in the back lot, way down in the back lot, because that's the only place you could park it at that time. And they, were, they had a shuttle that you could drive, you could ride from all the way down a bar and boulevard all the way to the front lot, which was up by uh, Lancashire. But I was so excited, I walked. I walked all the way up through the back lot, saw all the movie sets, and I was looking around, looking around, and they were, it was, you know, it was like 7.30 in the morning, and there were already some film crews out there shooting, and I thought, wow, I can't believe it. I cannot believe it. And I walked in, and they got me started, and I never looked back. What was your first, uh, do you remember your first assignment? Yeah, Buck Rogers. At that time, I'm not sure they had cast anybody yet. Aaron Gray was in it, and this other guy, Gil, Gil something or other. And uh, at that time, they hadn't cast anybody. We were just preparing the thing. And they put me with a production designer or art director. I didn't know what an art director was. I'd never worked with an art director before. And this guy, is a, David Marshall was his name, English guy, he was a nice guy. But he, he wasn't really, he was always running and busy. And he never seemed like he was really that talented. He could draw a little bit, but not very much. So he would give me little projects to do. And I would just start designing things, drawing and sketching. And he really, really liked what I was doing. I started designing all those space planes uh, that they were going to, going to use in the show. And then the, but there was a conflict because there was a special effects company they were working with in L.A. 
who wanted to design the space planes. But David told me, he says, keep on drawing, keep on drawing, I like your work, keep on sketching. And he would take my drawings and, and make prints, and give them to the, this effects company. I was so new in the business, I didn't even know what an effects company was. So anyway, I worked on that show for, from October to about December. And I designed a lot of space planes and weapons. weapons. And uh, I did sketches and like little re little renderings and uh, stuff. So you were like Ralph McQuarrie at Buck Rogers? Yeah, I was, I was, I was, I wasn't illustrating him in color and paint, but I was drawing him in, in uh, pencil. He really liked it. He just kept encouraging me. Yeah, yeah, keep going, keep going. And then, because of all the problems they were having with uh, the effects house, everybody wanted control, and I guess certain people up at the top didn't like all the arguing and bickering, and they didn't like some of the things that the effects house were producing, and, they, and uh, David was sticking to his guns about what he wanted. They shut the whole thing down, the show, talking about The production, had, had it aired yet? Oh, they hadn't even built anything yet. No, no, this was, they hadn't even built a set yet. They were still doing drawings. And it was just me and him. I don't think it was anybody else on the show. So they shut the whole show down and around Christmas. And then we took, yes, we worked, we worked through Christmas. It used to be they were shut down at Christmas, but we worked through this Christmas. I don't know what I did. They put me on something else. I don't remember what it was, to, just to keep me going. And after Christmas, they started at Buck Rogers back up again. What was your title? Set designer. And they started Buck Rogers back up again. And uh, since I had worked on it for like over two months before, they put me back on it with a new production designer. His name was Paul Peters. He's still around. Paul had a much more firmer hand. He knew what he wanted, or at least he, he made you think he knew what he wanted. And he, uh, he had a firmer hand over the, the look of the show and the design of the show. And, but he, he hired me, they put me with him. And I think they might have put somebody else with us too. And this was like the, the two hour movie of the week, which was going to be introduced, oh, it, actually, no, no. It was a two-hour movie, which was then going to be aired as a, as a two-hour movie of the week to kick off the, uh, the, the pilot. It was like a pilot, yeah. So it was first released as a, as a film, and my first film. It was first released as a movie for two hours in the theaters. In the theaters? In the theaters, yeah. I don't that. Oh, yeah, it was. They uh, re released it. I think you went. I took your mother. And they, we, it was a held on the lot. It was universal. And uh, maybe you couldn't go. I don't know. But I went. I, I went. And yeah, I think your mother went. I, I, brought, I brought your mother. Yeah. And I thought I brought you. I don't know. <clears throat> it was like for the cast and crew screening. I really don't remember this. And then a week after that, it aired on TV as the pilot for the series, two-hour pilot, 
or maybe two weeks after that. And then they started produ producing, well, they had been producing the, the series, a one-hour series every week. And uh, I didn't work on the series. I, they put me on something else immediately after I finished uh, the two-hour movie of the week. And I don't remember what it was. It wasn't Battlestar Galactica, was it? No. They were starting Battlestar Galactica at the same time. But that be that was a nightmare. That was a freak show. <laughs> Why how do you say that? You did work on that though. I worked on it for one for about three days once with a with a woman who'd had no idea what she was doing. They were trying to do this a one hour show every week with makeup and, and prosthetics and strange looking creatures like in the bar scene for Star Wars and they had to try to make all this stuff work in 24 hours a day. And it was a, it, that show was a nightmare. At first it was a night at first it was a nightmare. But it was a it was a handleable. You could handle it. And as the show progressed on through its life, it became more and more bizarre and more and more out of control. And they tried to do more and more strange things. In, in no time, and it was like killing everybody. They had to try, they had to create new characters, uh, prosthetics for, for animals and f people with animal faces and animals with people faces, and, and they didn't have any computer CGI. It was all done in camera yeah. in those days. Well, there was, there was some CGI. Motion, what is called motion control for spaceships flying through the, through the heavens. That was done, um, I thought Dykstra was doing it, but then Universal bought out somebody and they had their own facilities. And then they produced their own motion control of spaceships and things like that. And they had a whole crew of guy model builders and, and they would actually shoot the thing themselves and then give them the the clip film clips of what they needed to cut into the show that was i guess that was pretty successful that worked out pretty good for them because they had a dedicated bunch of geeks who uh worked 24 hours and they were non-union guys but they did a good job so you had to join the union how in all the years you've been working in Hollywood, what do you think of the union? I like the union. Who are you affiliated with? On Local 847, if that's what you mean. And then I got into the art director's union. And that was, forget the local. I got into that one. I went to Florida for Universal to work on the theme parks. They needed to promote me to art director because I was designing a whole big segment of it. Universal Studios in Florida, and they couldn't just have a set designer doing that. They had to be an art director. So uh, I had to. I was a member of two unions for many, many years. Two, three, two, seven, yes, I had to. It was expensive, but it paid off. How? Because I worked 52 hours, 52 days a week. 50. I'm sorry, 52 weeks a year, for for 10 years almost. And that's unheard of in the industry where you work 52, 52 weeks a year. Usually there's like, you work three or four months on a show and you're off a month or a couple of weeks or three weeks and 
and you pick up your other show and maybe you work another two or three or four or five months depending on the show and then you're off and they let you go because they don't need you anymore and you're looking for your next show and so when you're off like that you're losing income but when I was working Universal on these projects in Florida and Japan uh, there were 52 week 52 weeks a year jobs and uh, you could really build up your pension, which was good. You got to travel. They sent me to Florida to live. They sent me down there on trips before we relocated. And uh, sent all my furniture and cars and everything down there. And the same thing in Japan. Didn't send the cars over, but they sent us and some not furniture, but personal belongings, and set us up in a really, really nice apartment. And it was very successful. So you've worked on theme parks and television and motion pictures. What are some of your favorite projects or things you're proud of? The theme parks and some motion pictures. Like uh, I worked on... Uh, Rambo 2 in Mexico for six months. And I worked on, in Israel on Masada. You went to Israel with me, with us. And uh, I was very proud of what we did in Israel. I was very proud of what, what I did in Mexico. Designed a boat in which we blew up. Designed a, a modified a, a, a French English helicopter called Aerospatial into a Russian hind helicopter. Made three of those. But they were done for another movie called Red Dawn. And they had all the pieces left over and they, the Rambo producers got the same company that had the pieces and the helicopter and, and I supervised all that, putting it back together again for, for Rambo after it had been taken all off from Red Dawn in Mexico. I handled all that. Designed this boat, did all the drawings in the hotel room. Supervised construction of that. Supervised construction of the prison camp. Designed the prison camp on the, uh, on the, in the jungle, on the, on the edge of the water. And uh, then all the theme park projects. I was pretty proud of those, especially the one in Japan. Wakayama. It was a, uh, a Mediterranean fishing village, like in Spain or Italy, something like Portofino or Positano or the, uh, the five little villages near Portofino, which names escape me right now, where you used to be able to only get there by boat, now there's roads to them. It's called Cinque Terre, five little villages. I've been there, I visited there. And uh, they wanted this a conglomeration of all those Italian, Spanish, and French architecture built on a man-made island in Japan just to support the construction of more condominiums on that man-made island by um, 
Matsushita Investment Development Corporation. Which at the time also, which at the time also owned Universal. Not, yeah, they owned, they did own Universal, that's right. So, there was the theme parks and the, some of the features. Who inspires you as an artist? I got into Frank Lloyd Wright, and uh, I love his work as a, as a designer. And then some of the things that he brought back from Japan when he was Japanese art. I started getting into, getting into Japanese art and Japanese painting, Japanese screens. I really like that. I like the way he, he blended um, his architectural designs for contemporary America at the his time of his contemporaries with Japanese uh, art. It was really beautiful. And uh, I still respect that. Uh, his, his work. I think, I think Wright was, he's, he's a self-aggrandizing genius, but very talented, very, uh, very elegant designer. But he had a, he had a, an arrogance. But, you know, sometimes you have to overlook those. And then there was Mies van der Rohe as a designer, architect. He always said, less is more. He developed that phrase, less is more. Yeah, and it, he also developed the phrase, God is in the details. I agree with that, God is in the details. But I never liked the term, less is more. I always thought less is less and more is better. And God is in the details. What does that mean to you? What, God in the details? I never knew you to be a religious man. What is God in the details? Well, when you're designing a building, God is in the details. When you're designing something, you have a plan and then you draw the elevation and, and then you start doing the details. Well, when you do the details, how you turn a corner, how you make all the pieces come together and fit so that they... Uh, all work as a whole and clean design and care he would carefully think things out uh, and work them out so they were just really little details of the corners or, or the way the wall met the ceiling or, or a roof or the way uh, a column would come up and hit support the uh, the overhanging roof he would spend hours, I guess, working all that out, so it was just really, really, really pretty. And that's what put him on the map. And he went on to design, he moved to Chicago after, He's, he was from Germany. have been listening to the Rider Stride Chronicle podcast, available for free through iTunes. For more information, visit us at www.stridechronicles.com. To contact us, please call 310-439-8754 or send us an email at info at strikechronicles.com. Queen and Billy Bear.